today's message is called Death Could Not Hold Him. It's from one of my favorite passages of the resurrection. Every gospel has one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts picks it up with the, the Great Commission. There are five times you see the Great Commission. There are five occurrences, or not five occurrences, but five records, historical records, of the resurrection. And Peter does it in the form of a sermon. Actually, in Acts 1, Jesus appears from his resurrection until his ascension. There's 40 days where he is teaching them things about the kingdom of God, the present reality then. It wasn't something that was off in the future, but it was established. It's what the cross was for. And so we're grateful today as we open the word in the title of this message is Death Could Not Hold Him. Say that with me. Death Could Not Hold Him. Acts chapter 2 Peter preaches a message. They were gathered with 120 disciples in the upper room, continuing in prayer for about 10 days. And suddenly, everybody say suddenly. Suddenly there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind from heaven, and there appeared as tongues of fire set down upon them. And they all began to speak in a heavenly language as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. There was a stir in Jerusalem. It was the Feast of Pentecost, which is the second big feast in the season of three major feasts. Actually, technically there's seven. There's three smaller feasts under Passover. There's one middle one. It's called Pentecost in the third month. And then there's three under Tabernacles in the um, tenth, tenth month, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and we're here in the middle. And so at, at Pentecost, Pentecost literally is 50 days after the resurrection, and the Spirit of God gets poured out, and Peter and the 120 move out into the streets, and everybody thinks that there's just some kind of raucous party going on because there's all of this shouting and not screaming with terror, but screaming with excitement. And the city is filled with faithful believers, faithful Jews, who had come to worship at the temple during the Feast of Pentecost. It's the Feast of the First Ripe Harvest it's the, the first fruits start coming in, and people are excited about that, and they're celebrating. And particularly Pentecost literally means 50. Penta 5, Pentecost is 50, so it's 50 days after the resurrection. Jesus has been teaching for 40. He ascends, and he says, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So they actually listen to him. They're in an upper room tarrying, praying, waiting on the presence of God, and the Spirit of God gets poured out. A bunch of folks think these Jews that are spirit-filled now, Jesus followers, think that they're drunk. And Peter says, no, 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 these folks are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the, the third hour, which is 9 o'clock in the morning. And so he says, this is what the prophet Joel spoke, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit and upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, it's interesting, those who think that women shouldn't speak in church, Peter said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And he says, this, this promise is the one that I've given to you. This is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And he starts to preach. And we come into Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, and two more verses, 32 and 33, for my text today. Read silently with me as I read aloud. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. 
but God. Everybody say, but God. But God knew what would happen and his, say it with me, his prearranged plan. Those of you who don't appreciate this doctrine of this theological idea called the sovereignty of God, this is one of multitudes of verses that nails this idea down. Jesus didn't just fall into the hands of an angry mob accidentally. God's prearranged plan, the King James says his predestined plan. Before the foundation of the world, God ordered, God planned, God established. The scripture says in the book of Revelation that he was the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned, before there was ever a rebellion, before there was high treason committed and basically the human race flipped God off and said, we're going to do whatever the heck we want to do ourselves. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to eat of every tree in the garden. And they committed high treason. And the Bible says God's prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. He says, with the help of lawless Gentiles, you, he's talking to Jews, you nailed him to a cross. You Romans who carried that out, you lawless Gentiles, all of, all of you did this. And he said, say it again, but God. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. And here is where my title came from. Read it. For death could not keep him in its grip. I love it. The King James says death could not hold him. The authorized version says it was impossible that death should hold him. How I many you know there's nothing stronger than the power that is in Jesus Christ? If you believe that, put your hands together and give him praise. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Two more verses. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. Father, bless the reading of your word. Thank you that your words are spirit and they are life. That life is resurrection life. That life is power. That life is strength. That is the mighty working power of the Holy Spirit that works in each of us as believers mightily. Thank you that we are blood bought, that we are water baptized, that we are spirit filled, that we are the people of God called before the foundation of the world to declare the goodness and the wonders of God out of darkness and into his marvelous light that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us to be his people who were not a people. We declare that. We pray that. We're dependent upon you. We lean into you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But God, I thank you. That is, that's B.C. in my life. That's before Christ. I'm no longer apart from you, but... Because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, I can do all things through him, through the one who gives me strength. And it is in that matchless name, that powerful name, that name that is above all names, that all of the people of God said. Amen. Come on, like you mean it. And all the people of God said. Amen. Amen. Here's our one thing on the screen. Read it. Find one and read it with me, please. Here we go. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the what? Hinge point of history. It provides redemption for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future. Jesus is the center of everything. Listen as I give it one more time. My one thing is always there like a chorus in a song that you sing again. You, you hit a verse, you come back and you sing the chorus again. You hit a second verse, you come back and sing the chorus again. 
going to give you three points this morning, and every time I'm, com I'm coming back to the chorus, and the chorus is this. The death, burial, and resurrection. These three days are like bookends in Christianity. What happened from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday is critical in your life. It changed everything in the universe. Multiplied millions, yea, even billions of Christians gather around the world in this season to lift up the name of the one who has conquered death, who is no longer in the grave, the one who is alive forevermore. If you believe that, put your hands together. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge point of history. He didn't come at the beginning. He doesn't wait till the end of history to reveal himself. We believe he's coming back again, and we, are, we long for that day. But he came in the center, in the hinge point of history, it provides redemption for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future. Jesus is the center of everything. Point number one this morning, as we open this together, I want to talk to you about the scandalous cross. The cross literally is the most heinous, brutalizing form of execution in the history of man. You know, somebody says, well, beheading is worse. Yeah, but it's instant and it's gone and it's over with. The crucifixion is a long, painful, drawn out, dying over hours process. It was utilized for several hundred years throughout the whole Roman Empire as the oppressing party, as the Roman Use, as they use this to literally dot the countryside, leaving those carcasses, hanging on those crosses all around the whole Mediterranean as they conquered people groups. This was a means of keeping the people underfoot, a means of keeping them submitting to Caesar, a means of ha having them recognize that the empire had complete and final power. But there was one that was coming who was greater than Yes, he would be caught like the ram in the thicket that God revealed to Abraham when he raised the knife to slay his only son. God provided a ram caught in the thicket and Jesus is the ram that was slain for the sins of the world who was caught in the thicket, the sins, the iniquities, the transgressions. It's because God used him as the sin bearer, poured out upon him who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This scandalous cross... This horrible symbol, which has become a prominent, popular piece of jewelry. Nothing wrong with wearing a cross, but just remember that you're wearing a symbol of execution. You might as well be wearing a syringe. You might as well be wearing an electric chair. You might as well have a charm that has a gas chamber on it, or a guillotine, or a, a rifle for a firing squad. All of those were means by which criminals... Lives were taken, the, the, the just, literally, in order to bring justice to those. It was, it was in order to many times, in an unjust way, to keep those protesters that were raising a voice for freedom and for liberty, it was to keep those voices quiet. Jesus hung upon a scandalous cross. The book of Deuteronomy, the prophet Moses says, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And Jesus picked up that idea. Paul wrote it in the, in the, in the book of the, the, the letter to the Galatian church. And he said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, for Christ became a curse for us. And when he did, he absorbed it. He swallowed it all up. He took upon himself the penalty 
the, the sanctions that the law of God had provided against us who had sinned, Jesus took the curse himself and swallowed it up. He, he, let, he let the fangs of the cobra of Satan sink into his flesh. He ingested the venom. He swallowed it up. He took the fangs out of the snake and he arose from the dead because he didn't stay on that cross. Come on, somebody. This horrible picture of execution that Jesus died on was one, literally, I want to explain it to you for just to take a moment because it's not just nailing into feet and hands and stabbing him or spearing him in the side. The cross literally is a death by drowning. You drown inside in your lungs by all of the fluid that begins to fill your lungs. And many times when an, an individual was very strong, and they were able to continue to live for hours, the Roman soldiers would break the legs of the person who was being crucified because the only way the, the crucifying person or crucified person could breathe was they would push up because their lungs were continually filling up with fluid. They were drowning on the inside. Death by asphyxiation. And before they could ever break the legs of Jesus, they said, he's already dead. And he fulfilled the prophecy given in the book of Psalms that not one of his bones was broken. That's one of over 300 prophecies about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, fulfilled in time in history. What separates Christianity from the rest of the world religions is not mythological stories, it's not ideas. Easter is not the rebirth of hope. Easter is the cornerstone of the gospel. A man made in the image of God, God in the flesh, God himself, Jesus, Son of God, God the Son, died on a cross. While you were yet sinners, he died for you and me. But you know what? He didn't stay there and he didn't stay in the tomb. He conquered it and he overcame it and he got up. Hey, if this thing keeps flaring at me, I'm going to have to throw it down. I'm going to just keep pushing it down. The cross is the message is that it's not over until it's over. The cross is the message is that the suffering we experience is not in vain because Jesus suffered for us. He is the just suffering for the unjust. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. He took my place. He took your place. He is our sacrificial substitutionary atonement. He, he is the one who replaced us. We should be on the cross, but he died for us in my stead. Hallelujah. The message of the cross is not just it's not over till it's over, but it's also failure is not final because they looked at the cross as a point of defeat. J Satan and the hordes of hell were snickering and, and mocking. The, the Roman soldiers planted a crown of thorns on his head, mocked him and put him in a scarlet robe, handed him a scepter. On the cross, if you're really the son of God, then bring yourself down, deliver, deliver yourself. He's talking about delivering all of the nation of Israel. He's talking about delivering uh, blind eyes and deaf ears. Why can't you get off the cross? And they're mocking him. They're, they're, they're deriding him. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. The contradiction of sinners. Everybody say contradiction. It's the Greek word antilogia. Logos or logos is the word. Ante is against. Words spoken against him, against him, 
False accusations, things that were completely ungrounded, unsubstantiated, untrue, lied upon, spat upon, ridiculed, made fun of. He endured it because something was set in front of him. It was the joy, not just an emotion, but the joy of the people of God that he was dying for. That's you and me. Come on, give him praise. The message of the cross is that failure is not final. Because it's not over with. The hinge point of history is not just Good Friday. And so many times we emphasize in the gospel the cross. But the cross, lots of people died on crosses in the Roman Empire. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of thousands of people died on crosses. Just dying on a cross isn't what did it. He went in the grave. He wrestled the enemy of Satan down and took the keys of hell and death away from him. And he got up out of the grave. And it's the resurrection that completes the work of the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, but he breaks the power of sin in our lives because he's alive. Come on, somebody. Yes. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge point of history. It provides redemption for my past, purpose for my present, and hope for my future. Jesus is the center of everything. Point number two, Jesus was laid in a tomb that he didn't even own. Actually, he owned the whole world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. But when he came down from the cross, a rich man who loved Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea said, put him in my tomb. The scripture says he came and begged the body of Jesus. He begged Pilate, let me have, let me have Jesus' body. I want to honor him. I want to make sure that he has all of the right burial and his body's anointed with spices and we wrap him up in the right grave clothes and we put him in a tomb. And the glory of the tomb is that he didn't stay there. I've been to the site in Israel where they, they say, and they don't know exactly where it was, but this is one that potentially could be uh, the tomb that Jesus was in. And of course, on, nailed to the door on the tomb now that you could go in and out of, it says he is not here, he is risen. And I love that. Between Friday... And the death of the hopes of the disciples and the people of God. And Sunday when it all gets turned around, there's a whole day of complete silence. And I think God did that on purpose because between me and you trusting God for a promise to be revealed and the actual manifestation of that promise, there's always a waiting period. And there's a time that we go through where we wrestle doubt and we, we have fears that come upon us and we really have to say, God, was this really you or did I miss it? God, has my dream died? God, is my hope gone? Because on Holy Saturday, it was that penetrating, piercingly loud silence. Not a word. It was like a, a cloud hung over the people of God. Those who had hope in Jesus to come and be the king, it seemed as if it all died. And I want to tell you this morning that when all hope is lost, God always has something else up his sleeve. And I, I saw a story this week that I had to grab hold of. It was, a, it was a friend of mine, a dear brother, a kingdom man who preaches the present reality of the kingdom of God, Bishop Tony Miller. He's gone on to be with the Lord. Jerry Finner sent me a TikTok, sent me this, and he said, 
it was, he paid me the greatest compliment. He said, Pastor, he said, I love you. You inspire me. I saw this, and it made me think of you. And when he sent it to me, I was actually driving down the road from the mountains of North Carolina. I was in the Blue Ridge Mountains last weekend for a leadership conference, and I was headed to Atlanta to see my baby girl opening for John Mayer for the Atlanta show. And I was back there this last Wednesday and saw another one. This week I'm flying. I'm, I'm catching four of the 25 because I want to support my baby. And, and I was driving, and Jerry sent this to me, and I'm watching the road, and I'm watching this, and I said, oh, my gosh. This, I, 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 got, I called Jerry, and I said, I'm going to use this for my Easter message. And so this is it. Look at the screen if you look. I want you to see this. This is a painting, very famous, by a German painter. It's obviously a, a period piece. This is a, the painting is called Checkmate. Everybody say Checkmate. You can see that they're playing a game of chess. Uh, the, longer, the, the longer title of the painting is uh, Faust and Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles is Faust's name for the devil. Okay, so in this painting, on the left, this is the devil. Uh, if you could really see it really clearly and look up close, you would see this sinister look on his face and the beard. Of course, he's got this, he's very flamboyant. Um, and over here, you have man. It's a picture of Faust himself. But you will notice that on his face, he's very caught in a place of worry. His hand is on his brow. Basically, he's sweating because he thinks he's lost the game to the devil. And it's a larger metaphor for the struggle that we everyone face at some point in our lives when we're struggling against sin or temptation or making a bad decision or something that we are being drawn to. And now there's this obviously angelic figure that's just sort of watching over both of them, almost as if the audience of the angels of heaven are watching us in our battle with Satan. And the, the, the story here is that they're playing this game of chess and the man basically thinks that he has lost the game because Satan has said, checkmate, I've got you. So this hangs in the Louvre, the very famous museum in Paris, France. They were conducting a private tour one day with a couple of buses of champions. There were some athletic champions in this group. The hostess that had been trained by the Louvre was walking through the museum and giving the history, the person who painted it, some of their background, their family, what the, the message or the symbolism or the metaphor that's going on in the painting. And among those champions, there was a world champion chess player. And everyone is standing there and listening to the hostess and really paying more attention to her than they're looking at the painting, but the chess player is mesmerized by what he's looking at on the board. And the hostess moves on. They move around a wall into another corridor, another section of the museum. And all of the, the, these athletic and various champions that were visiting in a private tour followed the hostess around, and she was the tour guide telling them about other paintings. And she looked around and missed the world champion chess player, and she leaves them milling in a larger gallery, the rest of all the athletes and everybody, the champions. And she comes back around to this painting called Checkmate, and she sees the world champion chess player standing there. She says, sir, we've moved on. Wouldn't you like to join the tour? And he's so mesmerized and caught in looking at that painting, he doesn't hear her, and she has to grab him by the sleeve and says, sir, we need to move on. And he said, I'm a world champion chess player. 
And world champion chess players can see things that ordinary people don't see. She said, okay. She, he says, well, you either need to change the name of this painting or you need to change the painting. She says, well, sir, this painting is hundreds of years old. It's a priceless piece of art. We're not going to touch the painting. He says, well, you need to change the name then. He says, because I'm a world champion chess player and I see things, champions see things other people don't see. And I said, I'm telling you, I looked at this board and I, I noticed the few pieces that the man had won against the devil against Satan and I saw all the numerous pieces that Satan had won against the man and he said the painting is called checkmate the man looks like he's about to lose but what I see on this board most people don't see because I'm a world champion chess player he said I'm telling you that I see that the king has one more move And I want to tell you this morning, if you feel like you've been cornered by the enemy in your life, if you're in a place where lack is what all you think that you've got to eat out of, if you, if you feel like your body has been racked with something that you know that God is greater than, I want to tell you God has one more move for your life. Don't give up and don't quit. Because it's not over till it's over. And failure is not final if you, if you don't quit. There's one more move, and that's my last point this morning. The king has one more move. Everything in Jesus' life prepared him for this moment when he got up out of the grave. Jesus now is the center of everything. And when we say death couldn't hold him, it's because everything to that point made him ready to wrestle with the greatest enemy. That's what the Bible calls death. We will put the greatest enemy under our feet. Jesus already has but there will come a time in humanity when you and I will put death completely under our feet. I love that. I long for that. Why could death not hold Jesus? Because before the foundation of the world in an intertheistic council, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit met. And the Father says, who will go for me? And Jesus said, I will go for you. And even the bosom of the Father could not hold Jesus. An angel appeared to Mary, a young virgin who was highly favored among women in the people of Israel. And he says, you're going to have a baby? And she says, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? He said, honey, that's exactly how it's going to be because you don't know a man. That holy thing, it's, it, it, it's the word hagios, it's the word sanctified. That sanctified holy thing which shall be born of you will be called the son of the highest. And I want to tell you, when the fullness of time came, the womb of Mary couldn't hold Jesus. They laid him in a, a manger from the, from the French word manger, which means to eat. A manger is a feeding trough. But how many of you know that the manger couldn't hold Jesus? The babe in Bethlehem. Something bigger on him. Something so big that wise men traveled two years and visited him in the house when he was a two-year-old and brought him gifts. Is that the rain? You better build your house on the rock. Because the rains are coming down and the flood's coming up. And a storm comes to every person's life. It's not when, but it's if. I mean, it's not if, but it's when. I'm going to say it right the next time. It's not if, but it's when. When he was 12 years old, they're visiting the city in a festival. 
His earthly parents, his, his, his mother Mary and his father Joseph, who was a carpenter, and they go to the city to celebrate a festival, and, and they're actually leaving, and they thought the whole family left together, and they're looking around, and two days they didn't even recognize it. First of all, what parents don't know where their 12-year-old is for two days? Now, I don't know if there's anybody in here like that or not. I, you know, I, 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 I drove by a place the other day, and there was, the, the weeds were so high, I thought, man, you could get kids lost in there. They would be lost and wouldn't know it. 12 years old, and they, they put out an all-points bulletin, ABP. There's a missing child. Everybody's cell phone goes off. There's an Amber Alert. Where's Jesus? They take two days and travel back to Jerusalem. They walk into the temple, and their 12-year-old son was sitting there mesmerizing the experts in the law and the testimony and the word of the Lord. And they come in, and they scold him. And they said, what have you done? Why would you do us this way? And he very simply, graciously, without disrespect for his parents, says, I must be about my father's business at 12 years old. There came a time when the carpenter shop couldn't hold Jesus anymore. I'm going to be honest. I despise the Renaissance painting of Jesus that show him as a very weak, pallid, just pale Always got that sheep around his shoulders all the time. And I want to tell you, Jesus worked in a carpenter shop. I don't want to offend you, but I, I believe Jesus had some muscles. I believe he was strong. And, and, and this idea of this constantly just little weak, pale-faced, I don't think that's the Jesus that's the Jesus of the Bible. But there came a time when the carpenter shop could no longer hold Jesus. He came walking up the road at 30. His cousin John is already preaching the one sent beforehand, the forerunner who would come and declare the way of the Lord and say, prepare you the way, make his path straight. Every valley he'll lift up, every mountain he'll bring low and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it. Hallelujah. Jesus came walking up the dusty road headed to the Jordan River for his cousin to baptize him and something about him that day gripped the heart of his cousin John and he stood up and prophetically declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Wow. Jesus walked down into the water and his cousin said, I'm not worthy to be baptized by you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, allow it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. And even his cousin couldn't hold him. The Pharisees and Sadducees over the next three years are constantly trying to trap him, asking him questions. And every time he answers with such excellent response that he literally frustrates them. He encounters every malady known to man. Every sickness bows the knee. Every disease has to flee. Every blind eye that he lays hands upon or spits in opens up. Every deaf ear unstops. Every tongue that never spoke is loose to speak words to bring praises to the glory of God. Poverty was no issue. Lack was nothing in his presence. You have some need, fine. Just bring me a little boy with a McDonald's Happy Meal. Five loaves and two fishes. And he breaks the loaves and every loaf grows a new loaf and every head grows a tail and every tail grows a head and he feeds 20,000 people. And the unbelieving disciples all take home a memento, a souvenir from the day. They've all got a basket full of loaves and fish. Twelve baskets full, hallelujah. You need to pay your taxes. Yeah, that was Friday. I guess it's going to do Monday. I don't know. I'm, I took care of mine a month, month ago. But you don't have enough money. Wouldn't you just love it if the, the father would whisper in your ear and say, go fishing. There's going to be a gold coin in the mouth of the fish. 
Now that's heavenly provision. That's kingdom. That's kingdom prosperity right there. Jesus said, we want to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Go, go catch a fish and there'll be a coin in its mouth. Lack couldn't hold him back. Poverty is nothing in the face of Jesus. The religious establishment couldn't hold him. His own disciples couldn't hold him. The last week of his life, he's opening up in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and he's talking to about the comforter that's going to come, the one who will guide them into all truth, this one who will paracletos, who will come and walk alongside them, that'll be a helper to them. And he says, I'm going away. And they say, oh, no, Lord, you don't want to go away. He said, it's better for you. It's more expedient if I go away because if I don't go away, the comforter can't come and they're all rebuking him and Peter is oh no Lord no, no absolutely not and Jesus said you don't have a clue you don't know what's going on his own disciples yet could not hold him everything at this point in his life is preparing him for that great battle where he's going to wrestle death Jesus Jesus, he's, he's moved. He's sitting at the table. Now, folk, listen to this. I want you to hear me. Those of you that are wrestling with people that you think you're enemies, did you know Judas ate at the same table that all of the other faithful disciples did? And Jesus let him eat. He knew what he was going to do. Matter of fact, he looked at him and he said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas left. But yet Jesus loved him so much. And he forgave him. He was bigger than the offense. And if anybody ever deserved a right to be a well, you just don't know what they did to me down at that church. You don't know what they did to me at my job. If anybody ever deserved to be offended, it's Jesus because he didn't do anything. He never sowed a seed to reap that crop. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Judas' own betraying heart couldn't hold him. Jesus' own struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays until he sweats drops of blood. And he said, God, if there's, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. His own struggle couldn't hold him. The soldiers approached him in the garden. And they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said three words, I am he. And there was so much power when he said, I am, that they fell down. They collapsed. And Benny hid one there to wave his coat. Just, he said, I am he. And they collapsed. The soldiers couldn't hold him. Peter took out a sword and he literally is trying to cut the head off of Malchus, but he just takes the ear off. Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on his head. He said, Peter, put your sword away. We're not going to do it like that. Who is this Jesus? It's amazing. He goes before the high priest. Before the night's over, he has three mock trials and the high priest couldn't hold him. He goes before Pilate. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Pilate couldn't hold him. The political establishment, the Roman Empire, there's not one political party then or now in America that's big enough to hold who Jesus is. Somebody say amen. Peter's denial couldn't hold him. The cross couldn't hold him. The curse couldn't hold him. The law couldn't hold him. The sins of the world could not hold him. And when he laid down in it, the tomb could not hold him. On the third day he got up and he ripped out of Satan's hand the keys of death and hell and he said, Behold, I am the firstborn from the dead. I am the first and the last, the alpha and the beginning. And I hold the keys of death and hell and I am alive forevermore. Come on, praise him.
My past sins can't hold him. Your present struggle cannot hold him. Our future failures cannot hold him. And when he came to it, death could not hold him. Hallelujah. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge point of history. I'm finished. It provides redemption for our past, purpose for our present. You've got a reason to be alive and hope for your future. Jesus is the center of everything. Somebody said one time, hope is the space between things, the way things are and the way they are yet to be. I have hope. I hope. Hope, hope is the thermostat on my wall in a hundred degree day outside. As I set it to 70, I hope. But it's the unit in the attic and the one outside that kicks on. That's faith. Faith calls those things which be not as though they were and it activates and brings into reality what hope pictures. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Hope is the thermostat. Faith is the unit that does the work and brings it into being. How many are thankful that God gave you the gift of faith? Come on. Every little breath of hope uttered by an inspired man or woman of God finds its fulfillment in the babe born in Bethlehem, in the carpenter's son, in the man from Galilee, in the seed of Adam, in the seed of Abraham, in the seed of David, in the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. In Mark, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings. In, I'm sorry, in Matthew, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings. In Mark, he is the ox, the great burden bearer, the servant of servants. In Luke, he is the perfect son of man. In John, he is the Son of God, the eagle, hallelujah. And he is all of those things to us. He is the lion and the lamb who have already laid down together in one nature, in Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that because of his resurrection, he is coming again and I will see him and my body will be changed. Glory to God. And when he comes, Jude says he's bringing with him 10,000s of his saints. And my granny is in that throng of people. And my grandfather, who is a praying man, and I believe he's on the other side looking over the balcony of heaven and praying for me right now. And my sweet wife is in that group that's coming back with him. Hallelujah! It's amazing that everything in the book is not just a bunch of stories strung together about super Bible heroes. But in every book we see a little resemblance. We see a little, just, just pull back the veil and a tiny revelation of this one that is yet to come. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman who will bruise the head, the seed of the serpent. In Exodus, he's our Passover lamb painted on the doorposts of our hearts. He's the one who delivers us by the blood, the water, and the spirit. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Deuteronomy, oh, hallelujah, he's the prophet like unto Moses. And I can quote all 66 books. Every one of them gives us a picture of this Messiah, this Jesus, this King of kings and Lord of lords. But you know what? We just fast forward. I don't have time. We fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation. And it ends by saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is within, with, with men and God makes all things new. Now, you know, it would have been totally justified had God just said, you all disgust me. I'm tired of it. 
I'm going to wipe you all out and I'm going to make all new things. But God never said, I'm going to wipe it all out and make all new things. He said, I'm going to make what? All things new. The devil will take something beautiful and twist it and pervert it to where it loses its beauty and the peace that God brings with it. And he will turn it and make it make you become dependent where you steal to get your fix. Whatever it is. And God loves to take things that have been broken and marred and literally bruised beyond description and take those broken things and make it beautiful again. So I want to say to you as I close this message, whatever your struggle is this morning, you may think you're cornered, but the king always says, say it with me, one more move. One more move. God will take the broken, bruised, jacked up, messed up, stuff in your life and if you will let him and if you won't quit he will turn it around and he will bring you out of darkness into his marvelous light Psalm 40 says he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings and he put a new song in my mouth and many shall see it and fear the Lord some of you lost your song right Billy Preston used to sing I got a song that ain't got no melody you don't want a song like that I just dated myself way back I don't know where that came from that was no ruin in my message notes but God wants to put a song in somebody's heart in this room before you go today. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you that you are our hope. You are our light in our darkness. You're our provision in the lack that we face. You're healing in the struggle and the disease that racks some of our bodies. Lord, you are provision. You are sin bearer for the penalty you are living to break the power of sin. Thank you that you're coming back to rid us of the presence of all sin. We long for that. Listen to me, heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. Do not leave this room today and miss your day of visitation. The king is here and he says, I've got one more move in your life. It ain't over till it's over. Just like you saw in the painting, checkmate. This king always has one more move. And you know what? He's moving and drawing your heart today. And in this moment, before we say the amen, sing our last song and get out of here today and we go eat Easter lunch together, the most critical decision you may ever make is at your door right now. The king is wanting to make a move in your life. And very simply, it's just leaning into him, turning from your past, whatever that is, and turning to him in faith. That's what repentance is. Repent and believe. And to believe is to basically say, God, I lean into you. Jesus, save me. Forgive my sins. Be Lord of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. So this morning, if that's you, if you've never crossed that line of faith and you know that you know that you know that you are a part of the family of God, that you're blood-bought, that you're spirit-filled, that you're washed in the water of baptism, that you are called his son or his daughter, this morning, you can know that with an assurance before you leave this room. And today, heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. If you'd like to say, Pastor, pray for me, would you slip your hand up for me right now? Anybody in the room? Yes, yes, I see a hand. There's another one. Yes, anybody else? Okay. As the, yes, one in the back. I see you back there. Thank you. So there's at least three that I've seen. Maybe, yeah, maybe three, maybe four. But I want you to pray with me. Everybody, everybody lift these words up. Every person in the room, let's say this together. Let's support our brothers and sisters. Because the Bible says if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the word says you will be saved. 
That's the promise God gives. So let's pray right now. Say this with me. Father, thank you for this word. My heart is encouraged. I'm filled with expectation, hope, and I look to you. I say this, Jesus, save me. I trust you. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Be Lord of my life. Order my steps. In Jesus' name, I pray. And all the people of God said amen. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise.